I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, it's Tuesday, the 28th of April. I'm Jules Breach. He's Andy Brassel. And this is Jules and Andy on Football Ramble Daily. You know, the defence had completely lost in set pieces. I can't remember what the stat is, but I remember after the Chibolese Cup, you know, a really large proportion of the goals that they conceded were from set pieces. So I think there was this huge lack of getting the basics right. Andy, another week in lockdown. How are you feeling? How's things at home? Yeah, pretty good. I feel like uh, I'm I'm keeping in reasonable physical shape, um, doing plenty of exercise, eating well, even though I've not had a haircut, my my hair looks okay. So, (laughs) Oh, don't. (laughs) (laughs) How about you? How about you? Yeah, No haircuts for me, but I turned into a barber this week. Yes. My other half finally let me get the clippers on his head. And honestly... It was the best day of quarantine so far. I have not laughed that much in a very long time. Let's put it this way. Um, I won't be doing that again anytime soon, but luckily he's taken it quite well, even though it looks pretty bad. I've shown you the photos, haven't I, Andy? It's not a good haircut. <laughs> you, you say that. I mean, he's quite a handsome gentleman, so he can carry it off. I, he <laughs> reminds me of Javi Garcia when he first arrived at Manchester City. And <laughs> you know you know what I mean? It reminds me of that thing in Nathan Barley where he has a terrible haircut. And he goes, today, ridicule. Tomorrow, <laughs> really cool. <laughs> Honestly, so I, 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 I think that's great. it. Like People will be copying that as time goes by. 
Well, I don't think he thinks that, but um, I think think he's got used to it now. Plus, I think it could have been worse. I mean, I could have actually just taken the whole lot off, but I actually left him with the top bit. So it looks all right, I think. But anyway, (laughs) I'll have to post a photo so you guys can see what I'm talking about, won't I? Well, as always, aside from haircuts, there's also been lots of big football news around. And one of the stories that's caught our eye is the news that Phil Neville will be leaving his job as England's women's manager next summer, meaning that he'll leave at the end of his contract. And we caught up earlier with the former Everton, Liverpool and England goalkeeper, Rachel Brown Finnis, to find out her thoughts on this news and what her reaction was when she heard it. I wasn't surprised. Uh, maybe the timing of the announcement kind of came out of the blue a little bit. Obviously, with there being no football and uh, no prospects of certainly international uh, women's football uh, on the horizon, uh, I suppose it did come out of the blue. But there had to be an announcement at some point because um, you know there was less than well about twelve months left on his on his uh, on his uh, contract. The decision was about to be formally announced by UEFA for the Women's European Championships to be postponed to 2022, which tied in originally with Phil Neville's uh, tenure being up at the end of the Euros 2021, which we were we're obviously hosting. So I, I, I understand it. I do think it's the right decision because uh, Phil Neville has done great. I think he's done excellent things with the Lionesses, took them up to number two in the world uh, as far as rankings. But since that World Cup, when we've been knocked out, it hasn't really worked and we wanted to be in a really positive place, what would have been heading into this summer's Euros and we weren't, simple as that. Uh, momentum had dropped, I imagine confidence will have dropped because we were just simply weren't winning games and uh, you know, the trial and error style of Phil Neville did not seem to be working. Rachel, what do you think has gone wrong since the the World Cup? Because it was such a pinnacle, certainly for for interest in and coverage of women's football in England. And as you say, that momentum was really important. You look at the crowd that turned out at Wembley for the Germany game, that absolutely Mm -hmm. enormous crowd. And obviously losing seven out of 11 since has made it more difficult to keep the focus of that interest. Why do you think that Phil Neville couldn't keep that momentum going? What went wrong? Well, I think he made a decision early on in the post-World Cup, which was ultimately the build-up to this European Championships 2021, that he was going to test out new players, uh, so bring in you know, some uncapped players, some young players, try some different players in different positions, Lucy Bronze in midfield as an example. And he's persisted with that. Uh, also his persistence with playing out from the back, which I agree with. I think that is the right thing to do, but he's come under criticism for that. Uh, And there also has to be, you know, certainly in in international football, in all high-level football, the philosophies, the what you practice, the game plan, what you practice in training, what you talk about, what you build up for, once the players are actually on the pitch, they do have to make some decisions for themselves. And playing out from the back is one of those that always kind of, brings up should you do it relentlessly uh, because it's it's the game plan that the manager has, has implemented or should you actually, when it comes to the game, play it as you see it a little bit. So I think Phil Neville has been very stubborn in his uh, attitude to, to the way he wants things done is the way things are going to be done. 
and I think really should have looked at what the strengths of his group of players are because he has the or had the opportunity to work with the majority of them during the Olympics to get the best out of them to prepare uh, as Team GB, but to prepare long-term for the Lionesses to be the best they could be as an England team in the Euros. And I think that stubbornness maybe well it certainly hasn't worked out with results wise performance wise if you look at the she believes performances compared to a year ago uh, or even two years ago when he first came into into the hot seat um you know they've been they've been really lackluster you've not i've not known what the game plan was how are england going to go out and impress themselves upon a team even you know the likes of japan they kind of stuttered past them in the She Believes. Um, against Spain, we were beaten, and and I think justifiably so. You can see the game plan of Japan, to, com- to draw comparisons. You could see the game plan of Spain, exactly what they were going to do, how they were going to hurt you. You could see, obviously, the game plan of the USA, how they want to play, what they're exceptional at, how they're going to hurt you, where they're going to hurt you on the pitch. But... For me, it was a bit vague as to what England were trying to do. And that that wasn't just during the She Believes. I feel we've tailed off since the World Cup and there's been more questions and answers that have come up um, since, since, that, since that World Cup period. As you said, seven out of 11 games lost and a lack of direction and real clarity in their performances was not good news. Rachel? There's been a lot of reaction to the news that Phil Neville will be leaving the job as Lionesses manager next summer. And one of the reactions um, that I read that I thought was quite interesting was from the BBC sport journalist Alistair McGowan, who said that Neville's reign feels like a failed experiment. Now, when Phil Neville was first appointed, there was most definitely a mixed reaction from both people working in football, football fans as well. Do you perhaps think that because of his successful playing career that the expectations of what he could do with the Lionesses were perhaps too high? Um, I think the what he'd done in his playing career was really one of the main reasons why the FA wanted him. Uh, it was, you know, obviously he had his coaching badges and he's English and I think he was very Gareth Southgate-esque in his demeanour. Um, you know, a a top, true, clean professional uh, and was attractive to the FA in that respect. And I think what the FA and what Baroness Sue Campbell um, needed was a huge injection of the profile of women's football. And I think what Phil Neville brought was that. And I think it it kind of opened the eyes to the mainstream media. um, And, for instance, Manchester United didn't have a women's team. Uh, it was maybe coincidental that he came into to, to reign as England's number one and very soon after Man United decided they were going to have a women's team. But I think he's been quite influential in, in opening the eyes or, or normalising women's football at the top level. So I think, you know, I, I think it was two-pronged from the FA. Um, obviously, his coaching abilities were still relatively unknown uh, in some respects. But what he was bringing for the first time to the Lionesses was an absolutely glimmering former playing career and the ability to bring 
scenarios from the very, very top level, from the top pressure situations that he could actually relate to the girls, you know, girl, the, the girls who won't have been, had a coach who's been in situations like that. So for me, that those two things were very, very attractive and I understood the reasons why the FA wanted to bring him in. And, you know, that initial uh, spike in performances and certainly our world rankings, uh, you could see... The, it had the desired effect, um, Phil Neville coming in. And and I, I bet if you talk to any of the Lionesses, they will have learnt so much under the reign of Phil Neville. Um, you know, because those experiences that he's had from uh, working day-to-day under Sir Alex Ferguson and with the, that, you know, that, that class of 92, the attitude that they must have displayed on a day-to-day basis towards training, towards professionalism, I think will have given the girls a massive insight as to what it takes to be a, a top, top-level player, uh, both on and off the pitch. But I do think now that it has run dry. Uh, I think Phil Neville will, and this is probably one of the next questions you will ask me, is uh, is do you think he should step down before the Olympics? And yes, I do. I, I think what the FA have done now is given themselves a good few months um, ahead, uh, sorry, just over, over a year ahead before the Olympics, so that in the next few months, I, I, I anticipate Phil Neville to step down, uh, a new coach to come in, an England coach, but who will lead the Team GB team because the English FA are the ones actually uh, taking the lead, financing a lot of um, what goes behind the scenes to produce a, a Team GB women's football team. Uh, and I, I, I can't imagine that they won't want... Uh, the future England manager who will be taking uh, the the girls in Euro 2022 to lead the Lionesses, uh, sorry, to lead Team GB in 2021 for the rescheduled Olympics. So when we talk about successors, I mean, Jill Ellis Mm -hmm. is one of the candidates that a lot of people are, are mentioning. What about Emma Hayes? It didn't seem quite right. She didn't really seem to want the job last time around. Is there any chance of convincing her this time? (laughs) She's a brilliant coach and a brilliant manager, Emma Hayes. Absolutely no doubt in that. It's whether it's the right time for her personally. You know, she's got a a two-year-old son that she has to consider. She's starting off with the transformation uh, of of Chelsea. You know, they've just uh, gained their own premises, their own ground. She's built... Uh, a staff that she's proud of, that is is um, innovative, uh, that are getting the best out of their players. The work she's doing, you know, some of it is well documented, It some of it's not. The work she's doing is unparalleled for me in this league, at least, and internationally, um, what she's doing with some of the players. You know, she's really cutting edge in what she's doing with the players and what she wants to do and how she's building Chelsea. Um, so I can't see that she would want to leave that mid-process, which is what I think it is. Um, Chelsea are looking like the likely team to win the Women's Super League, um, although it's obviously on hold at the moment um, for next season. So I, I, I think she's more than capable of leading the Lionesses, but does she see it fitting in right now? Probably not. And I, I don't want to speak on her behalf because I haven't spoken to her about it, but that's just my perception. Um, I think we do need someone 
who like I think Jill Ellis would be a perfect fit. Uh, she's not liked by everyone as far as when she was with the US Women's National Team. Not all the players liked her, but you know she's said on many occasions, "I'm not here to be liked. You know, I'm here to get the best out of my players, to be ruthless, to make unpopular decisions if I think that's best for the team." Um, and you know, one of those uh, just to kind of paint a picture of maybe what she's like. She basically binned off Hope Solo, who was, um, you know, an iconic goalkeeper for the US Women's National Team. But I think, you know, putting all the kind of smoke screens aside, she decided that she wasn't healthy for the US Women's National Team and uh, and basically got rid of her. Um, so she's quite happy to make huge decisions, uh, you know, historical decisions really in some ways, for the betterment of the team. So I do think she's someone who knows exactly what it takes, has been in that environment for such a long time to to know what to expect from elite level players, to know what to expect from players who only expect to win. And I think that's the next thing that we need is someone who knows what it feels like to be inside of that camp, who knows what it feels like to expect to win every single match to go out and be ruthless and to crush teams, uh, to have a definitive game plan. Um, Because you could see how the US, not just how they played, but how they actually executed the game plan. You know, at 10 minutes of a wave of of ridiculous pressure and then they would back off, soak it up, kind of regenerate, uh, get get a bit of a breather in. Five minutes later, go again, 10 minutes of crushing pressure and it would kill teams. Um, but, you know, it was brilliant to see that really clear-cut game plan and and to be really blown away with how they would execute that. You could see that that comes from the coach, that she is, she's got that game plan, she's drilled it into the players. The players completely believed in what she was doing, what she wanted to do, uh, and they you know, put their necks on the line to execute it to the T and uh, to draw kind of parallels with the US Women's National Team and how uh, they set up. They actually go into camp for months. Uh, They spend more time with their Women's National Team than they do with their individual clubs, which it would be difficult. And I imagine if Jill Ellis would come into the job, would be a negotiation that she would have with the FAs as far as the international schedules um, and the, the... maybe doing things differently, um, you know, because traditionally the FA, both on the men's side and, and the women's side, you play for your club and that's, you know, where you earn most of your money, um, certainly on the men's side. And you come to your national team, you know, for a week heading uh, into a game or heading into a, a tournament. Well, the US women's national team do it very differently. You know, the the domestic side of it uh, is is almost secondary to international as, as far as the time that they spend together. But they have the success because of that. So it'd be interesting, actually, if you do bring in someone like Jill Ellis, someone who's, who's lived by a very different schedule when it comes to, you know, what you expect of an international manager, um, you know, is possibly, what, 10, 12, 15 weeks a year normally in camp. Well, that is very, very different if you are the women's US Women's National Team manager. Would she, if she came into post, bring in... A, a, an alternative viewpoint as to how and what you need to do, uh, how many weeks you have to actually be together for. Um, would she hold it almost like as a boot camp? 
I think it'd be really interesting because it's a different perspective of what it takes to to become that winner. Whereas, you know, the likes of Emma Hayes, Nick Cushing, Casey Stoney, as I said, I think are brilliant coaches and certainly brilliant managers, but have not, Kate, I know, uh, sorry, Emma Hayes has worked in the US, but as far as with the US women's national team and what their, their uh, structure as to what they do to become the winners that they've become is very, very different. So I think it'd be quite exciting for someone with different expectations of, of an FA uh, to come in and take that post. Rachel Brown finished there, the former England goalkeeper. Fascinating chat that that was, Jules. Um, one of the bits that I thought was really interesting is that Rachel was actually very positive about certainly how the the, the first part of, of uh, Phil Neville's spell in charge had gone, and she was she was behind the idea and the thinking behind the appointment, which is quite interesting because a lot of the the media in the aftermath of that have been it's a failed experiment as as I think you pointed out Jules yeah there was a, a one of the BBC journalists Alistair McGowan had written saying that he felt that Neville's reign was like a failed experiment he said it might sound harsh but in pure footballing terms that's how he felt I know Alex Scott said that she couldn't pick out a standout performance in Phil Neville's reign as well. So there definitely have been a few interesting reactions to it. My personal thoughts are that I think there have been plenty of positives. I know that initially when Phil Neville was announced as the Lionesses boss, it came as quite a surprise because initially they, the candidates that were kind of listed at the time um, to take over, they were all people and coaches who had had careers in the women's game. And obviously Phil Neville had no experience working in women's football. Yes, he had a little bit of experience as a coach and of course a fantastic career as a player in the men's game. But at the time, I think the reason why people were surprised by it is because it did seem like an unusual choice. But the FA explained their reasons for for picking him and, and, and Rachel rightly explained that as well, that a lot of that was down to his successes as a player and that the FA hoped that he could instill that kind of winning mentality that Rachel again pointed out is one of the things that perhaps is missing from the Lionesses right now to get them to the next level, to get them to the level that the USA team are at is having that inbuilt winning mentality. And I think that that's one of the things that they were hoping to achieve with Phil Neville as the boss. Look, I think there are so many positives in Phil Neville's reign. And I think he's been a really good appointment for the Lionesses. I understand that since the World Cup, things haven't really gone to plan. And of course, the results haven't been exactly as we were hoping. And it seemed as though the kind of trial and error that Phil was trying out, it kind of got to a point where it wasn't working and it didn't feel like we were getting anywhere. So I do understand the decision that the FA have made. But look, in my opinion, I think that there are lots of positives. There was, of course, the She Believes Cup win, which was a huge achievement. I know it's not a major tournament, but it it gave the Lionesses that feeling of being winners going into a World Cup, which is what was so important. Obviously, moving up to second in the FIFA World Rankings, which is their best position and the highest of an England team ever, a huge achievement under Phil Neville. Getting to the World Cup semi-finals, it was an amazing thing and amazing to be part of that for me as a fan, for me as a journalist working on that World Cup as well. And aside from what's happened on the pitch, I think it's the work off the pitch that I think Phil Neville will be remembered for. Of course, he made 
incredible strides off the pitch, enhancing the women's game, getting the media attention that I think it so rightly deserves. I think he also addressed issues around the treatment of the women's team as well. And all of those things are so important for the women's game to be able to move on and to continue to develop. Yeah, I I think that's fair. Um, But I think also we have to go back to the beginning and look at some of the reaction when he was initially appointed. And um, I I was rereading an article by uh, Louise Taylor um, that she wrote for The Guardian when he was appointed in in, in January 2014. And the the headline of it was, Phil Neville appointment, a kick in the teeth for better qualified coaches. Interestingly, further Mm -hmm. down, as well as the fact that a lot of people would have liked Mo Marley, who was the the under-20s coach, who after Mark Sampson went, sort of tidied the, the team over. A lot of people would have liked her as the continuity candidate. Interestingly, Jill Ellis, who we think will be one of the candidates this time, and I, I think Rachel said was was her preferred one. Um, she was mentioned in this article by Louise Taylor as, as someone who would have been um, a, a really good choice, and of course, she went on to to win the win the World Cup with um, with the US, having had some some turbulence mid mid reign there. Um, I think that point about um, Phil Neville getting women's sport is is actually quite important. And that was something, you know, pre-World Cup, the BBC did that tremendous behind-the-scenes documentary on on, on the England women's team. And Phil Neville was quite keen to impress, um, of course, his his sister Tracy, who was coach of the England women's netball team, saying, you know, I know about elite women's sport because I lived with it. It was was Mm. in the next room to me for all the time that I, I grew up. And maybe that was a kind of PR fail on... The, the the part of the FA that that didn't really come across in January 2018 when when he was introduced people just thought and yeah of course I think the profile and you know continuing the momentum and the growth of the women's game and um, getting eyes on it is is very important but to show that Phil Neville didn't just get the job for that reason I think they didn't do very well in conveying that at the beginning. And maybe in fairness, he didn't do very well at conveying that at the beginning. Obviously, um, a lot of people thought it was left field and, uh, you know, there was there was some focus on some tweets that he'd, he'd done before and all that sort of stuff. Having said that, the fact that he didn't have that level of experience of coaching in women's football, I think that's important. And I think that's especially important when it it, it comes on to that post-World Cup period because we've seen it in football coaches, not just in the women's game, but in the men's game as as well, obviously quite a lot, that you, you get a lot of coaches who have success at the beginning, but when they hit a setback, how do they react to it? And if you're an inexperienced coach, which he is and, and was an inexperienced coach in an increasingly high profile job, how do you turn it around? And that's something that he really seems to have struggled with. Um, and that, I think, is as good a reason as any that when you look towards a future candidate and it being someone like Jill Ellis, that experience and what Rachel was talking about, that sense of having done it before. I think that is where England need to go next because that is the area in which Phil Neville has fallen down specifically, I think. Yeah, and I think it, it's obvious really that the leading candidate would be Jill Ellis. I mean, she's an incredible manager. To win two consecutive World Cups with the USA is an unbelievable achievement. And there's absolutely no doubting that she would be probably the best candidate for this job because from everything that Rachel's said, from a player's perspective, having 
worked across the women's game for a number of years now, now working in the media and following women's football as closely as she does. She knows exactly what it will take to get England to the next level. And she's explained it to us. And and to have a coach like Jill Ellis be able to lead the Lionesses, particularly in the next few years that are going to be so exciting for the national team. I mean, it, it, it's unbelievable what we're about to face because of the coronavirus, because the Olympics has been postponed, because the women's Euros, which is going to be on home soil, has also been postponed. It means that we could potentially have five tournament years in a row. It's going to be a crazy time for the national team. And I think that to have the best coach possible to lead the Lionesses through those tournaments will give us the best chance for success as well. I mean, to have a Euros and then an Olympics in the next couple of years to look forward to, and then the next World Cup, we want to have the best manager in place to take the girls to those tournaments. And I do think Jill Ellis is the standout candidate. Jules, before we leave this, um, you mentioned the postponement of the, the women's Euros from 21 to 22. I mean, where do you stand on this? Because there are conflicting views. There are those that believe that it would have been great to have one um, huge sort of jamboree of, of of football with Euro 21, which you know, hopefully from England's perspective, they will be getting into the the, the, the semis and the, and the final at Wembley and then following up and sort of coattailing off the momentum by going straight into uh, the, the women's Euros. I mean, from my perspective, I think it's, it's better for the... The, the whole summer to be dedicated to the women's Euros rather than it be tacked on as almost a, a little afterthought. Where, where do you stand on that? Yeah, I'm with you on that, Andy. I, I prefer it to have its own summer for the women's Euros. I think what we saw from the Women's World Cup last summer is that there was such a thirst for football in that kind of domestic off-season when there's no yeah, football on. Yeah. We want to watch football. And I think that having the women's Euros tacked on to the back of the men's Euros next year, I don't think it would have that same that same feeling for some reason. Obviously, we don't know because it's never happened. But I just feel like having its own summer, like we've just had with the Women's World Cup, will serve it better. And I think that it will get the attention and the recognition that it deserves having its own dedicated few weeks um, for the tournament and having that in a separate summer to the men's for me just feels like the right decision. I also think that um, just kind of tacking on from one of the things Rachel mentioned is that the difference between England and the USA is having that kind of winning mentality. And I think to get England to that next level Rachel mentions kind of putting the girls into different boot camps and that's what the USA have done. I wonder whether the postponement of football because of the coronavirus pandemic might mean a shift in the scheduling of the women's game because the WSL has only been fully professional for the last couple of years. And of course, it follows a fairly similar schedule to the men's. Of course, there are fewer games, so the season runs in a different time, but it does run across the same number of months, really like the men's domestic schedule does. So it will be interesting to see whether any of that changes and how that might impact heading into both the Olympics and the women's Euros in the next couple of years. I don't think the team has gone forward and I think the team has gone backwards. So I certainly do think it's a, it's, it's a good decision. It's unfortunate, you know, it's disappointing. And I think after the last game, um, you could see from his reaction, he took responsibility. You know, he said... 
it's all on me. And, you know, I think sometimes he's had a few mixed messages during this time. Um, but I think he's shown his lack of, you know, um, experience during this time. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Jules and Andy here on Football Ramble Daily. And of course, you can always get in touch with us uh, at Jules Breach, at Andy Brassel, Jules and Andy at footballrambledaily.com. And as always, we will be getting stuck into some of your correspondence a little bit later. But what we wanted to do, we all miss that being outdoors, don't we? And um, that being actually at the game. So we wanted to look, Jules and I, at our games of the season so far, but it had to be games that we've been at because you know it's so much more than the actual stuff on the pitch isn't it although that's part of it it's about the excitement in the stands it's about the feeling of all being part of of one thing so Jules first you are going to be put on the spot what has been your favorite game that you have been to this season do you know what, Andy? There is only one standout candidate for this for me, and it is Chelsea 4, Ajax 4 in the Champions League group stages. It was the match at Stamford mm. Bridge, a rainy, wet bonfire night, November the 5th. And I never, ever thought I would say I miss being out in the rain at the football. But now that we've got no football, what I would do to be back at Stamford Bridge in the rain and relive this match. It was an incredible night. It was one of those games that had absolutely everything. It had incident after incident, eight goals, sendings off, VAR, disallowed goals, you name it, this game had it. It was it was a roller coaster of emotions and to watch it, to cover it for work. So I was there with Optus Sport with Mark Schwarzer. We did not expect it to end the way it did. It was just an amazing match. Do you remember it? 
I do. I remember it very well. And I think the most remarkable thing about it is when you think back at, on, on that game, you think it was 4-4. Why wasn't it more? Because yeah. I, I played the whole end bit with nine men. <laughs> and, and still yeah. had chances and created exactly. plenty of chances as well. Yeah, it was it was unbelievable. Heading into the game, you know, you arrive at Stamford Bridge and obviously I'm with Mark Schwarzer who having played for Chelsea, he's a bit of a legend around there. So everyone stops him for photos. So it was all the kind of standard stuff. We're walking pitch side. Everyone's kind of, oh, Mark, can I have a selfie? The Mark Schwartz of fan club route. Wherever we go as well, there's always an Aussie that manages to find him. You just hear, hey, <laughs> Schwartzy. And I'm like, "You've another Australian has somehow found you. Um, and then there's the longest walk ever. I'm sure you've done it yourself, Andy. The walk up to where the gantry is for where the media sits. Good for the it thighs, that. So, Good for the thighs. Oh the burn on the thighs as we were walking. I was just absolutely <laughs> knackered. I'm not going to lie. So you get to your seat and we sat there and we got ourselves into position, ready to do our, our first little hits before the game. And then the game kicked off and I was just thinking, okay, yeah, it's Champions League game. It's going to be exciting. But I did not expect it to start the way it did because Ajax had scored, I think, within two minutes of the game kicking off. And then a couple minutes later... Chelsea got a penalty and obviously Jorginho steps up and he never misses penalties. Probably the best penalty taker in the Premier League, in my opinion. So after four minutes, it was already one all. So you're thinking, okay, this game has started amazingly well. Where's it going to go from here? And then the third goal, so Ajax ended up going 2-1 up. Then they went 3-1 up in the first half. And the, this third Ajax goal was for me one of the picks of, of the game. It was it was unbelievable. So um, Ajax win a free kick and they're quite near down by the corner flag on the right-hand side of the pitch. And Zayac takes it, he whips the ball in and it hits the post and goes in off Kepa's face. I remember watching the replay <laughs> of this and the slow motion as it hammers Kepa in the face and then goes in is one of those moments I don't think I'll ever forget. But what a goal that was. And Ajax at 3-1 up, you're thinking there's absolutely no way back in this for Chelsea because despite the fact that the game had started with such a high momentum, when you're 3-1 down going in, in for half time, you don't expect Chelsea to come back into the second half the way they did. And they had so many chances that you thought Chelsea are actually going to get back into this now. But then Ajax go 4-1 up and you think, all right, okay, fine. It's all over. And then you get the drama. Aspilicueta makes it 4-2 for Chelsea. And then you have one of the craziest moments that I think I've ever witnessed in a live game before. There's a tackle made and the referee blows the whistle and you're thinking, what's going on here? And Daily Blind gets sent, um, gets, gets shown a red card. So you think, okay, Blind's off. Then all of a sudden you see the referee pull out another red card and Veltman then gets sent off. So then you have Ajax with both of their centre-halves sent off with still around, I think they still had about 15, 20 minutes left to play. And at the same time, Chelsea get awarded a penalty. So Veltman's sending off was for a handball in the box. Daly Blind was sent off for a bad tackle. It was just a, an, a nuts moment where when you're watching from the stands, you know what it's like, Andy, you're kind of going... What on earth is going on here? And anyone watching it at home will have had will have had the commentary to explain it to them. But me and Mark Schwartz were kind of stood there going, "What? What is going on right now? I don't know what's happened." But all we knew was that Ajax are now playing with nine men on the pitch 
without their two central defenders, this could now be Chelsea's game to win. And of course, they then provide the comeback that it, that just will live in Chelsea's fans' memories for a very long time. Jorginho steps up, he scores the second penalty of the game. And then towards the end of the match, I think with about 10 or so minutes to go, Reese James, who came off the bench, literally hammers the ball into the back of the net. He whacks it so hard that the keeper has absolutely no chance saving it. And the game ends for all. But as we've already mentioned, both Chelsea and Ajax had chances to win the game in the final few minutes. I think Aspilicueta actually had the ball in the back of the net at one point. It It was disallowed, I think, for a handball, which I still am not sure I see that handball. But anyway, either way, it ended a for all draw. But it was drama from start to finish and just one of the best nights I've had both working and as a fan at a football match. I just, I remember going on air at the final whistle and me and Mark just looked at each other and went, what on earth have we just witnessed? It was just, it was crazy. Brilliant game. You know, the two incredible things to come off the back of that is when we relive that, Jules. One, Ajax didn't qualify from the group, which I find remarkable because they were arguably, they were arguably the best team in it. They were terrific. Mm. And I'm sure listening to that, any Chelsea fans listening to that will be thinking, oh, ZXRs now. (laughs) Oh my God, of course. Which is, which is really nice for for, for them as well. The the other thing that quite shocked me is that uh, Mark Schwartz's nickname is Schwartzy and not Schwartzo. Very disappointing. Oh yeah, I know. Yeah, because in in Oz, everyone's uh, got an O on the end of their name. Yeah. So yeah. when I was when I was over there working, they nicknamed me Breacho. So I was Breacho. <laughs> hey Breacho. And uh, and so yeah, I was like you. I was quite disappointed that Schwartzy is not Schwartzo. But yeah, Schwartzy it is. Wherever you go, you hear a Hey Schwartzy, and there's an Australian that finds him from somewhere. It, it's he's got his fan club that follow him round. I swear. Um. On to yours, though, Andy. You have been to some incredible games as well. What's your standout match? Um, My one was a little bit of an early Christmas present. I think it was about 17th, 18th of uh, December. Dortmund 3, Leipzig 3. Another high-scoring draw. (laughs) Exactly. We're so predictable. But, you know, like Breacho, it's predictable, yet great. <laughs> and um, the, the thing about this was you, you talked about the, the momentum swinging either way with um, Chelsea and Ajax. I, I think the thing was with this Dortmund-Leipzig game, two things. Firstly, um, the fact that, you know, when you look at top of the table games, they often disappoint, don't they? They're a little bit cagey. People yeah. are, uh, you know, the you don't teams want to are, lose, do you? Yeah, exactly. The teams are too aware of the, the the context and and the stakes, and this was just nuts. I mean, it was amazing, really. Again, that it, it only ended three three. The second thing about it, Dortmund should have won this game four nil for for sixty sixty five minutes of it. They were terrific. They were really really good. Um, but the, the extremes of it, I think you look at the the second goal. Dortmund were were two nil up at half time and the second goal is an unbelievable move where um Julian Brandt does a 360 spin on Daya Opumakano who's one of the best defenders in the Bundesliga and he he did in football parlance need to buy a ticket to get back in the stadium after that before <laughs> Brandt put it in the corner and you think oh, Dortmund are in great shape 
They're pressing at the, be- the beginning of the second half, and then they make two dreadful errors to absolutely gift Leipzig a, a way back into the game. Roman Burki, the goalkeeper, who's been really good actually this season, uh, tries to head it clear, heads it straight to Timo Werner, who rolls it into an open net. And then Werner scores again after Brandt, who scored this unbelievable goal, then does a blind back pass straight to Werner, who then oh. goes around Burki and, and puts it in. So, you know, the Dortmund fans around you are thinking, how can we have played so well and be mm-hmm. drawing this game? And then after that, you get the Jaden Sancho moment. And it's, it's another really good move. Sancho with a really composed finish. Um, and it's, it's back to 3-2. It's the seventh game in a row that Jaden Sancho is scoring. And you remember that bit at the start wow. of the season where um, Sancho was being challenged. You know, there was talk about his timekeeping. People were saying, well, you know, a Dortmund going to have to let him go. Have they lost control of him? And his response and their response to that are amazing because they click together perfectly again and all the talk goes away, even though he's expected to leave at some point in the future. And um, then Leipzig, to, to their credit, come back and, and, and Patrick Schick, who's been a great signing for them, got, got the equaliser. Um, but yeah, Dortmund fans absolutely kicking themselves over that and also there's this weird dynamic we talked about the atmosphere and the the, the sense of being there what did it for me is i i went to the first time dortmund and leipzig played each other in in the top flight um which must have been about i guess three or four years ago now and um that was the one where dortmund were eventually punished for some of the outside the ground, I saw some quite unsavory behavior from some of the ultras towards Leipzig fans. Uh, but it was, there were mainly lots of banners um, having a go at Red Bull, having a go at Leipzig as a sporting concept because Dortmund feel they are the real and they feel that, um, as lots of German football fans uh, do, that um, Leipzig is um, an artificial. Uh, commercially inflated concept and a, a commercial side of football over commercial side of football that they don't really want to see. So even though it's not a derby or a Classico or anything like that, you do feel that there's, there's this weird dynamic. It's, it's not quite a, a rivalry, but definitely an enmity between the two teams, especially from the Dortmund direction. So, you know, they were... They, they were pretty browned off by that Dortmund, not just because of the situation, not just because it was a big game, but because they don't want to give anything away to to, to Leipzig at all. But um, yeah, fantastic to, to to get outside and watch the game. And hopefully we're all doing it again in the not too distant future. Now, um, I suppose we get better get on to the correspondence, haven't we, Jules? Yeah, let's. Let's do that. As always, we love hearing from you guys at Jules Breach, at Andy Brassel, at Football Ramble on Twitter. And you can email us with anything a little bit longer as well. Jules and Andy at footballrambledaily.com. What we got this week, Andy? Well, of course, we went big on the uh, imminent, as as we believe, Newcastle United takeover uh, last week. And um, a, a lot of you have been in, in, in touch over, over this. And it, it's interesting because it's a really <clears throat> emotive issue, of course, and something that really divides opinion. And I really wanted to read this one uh, to you by uh, Dale Hembest, who's, who's got in touch. Thank you, Dale. Um, he says, Dear Jules and Andy, I love everyone in the Football Ramble Daily Empire, but I must say I never could have imagined I would be so disappointed in you. Um, and he talks about um, that, that. I know. It's, it's, it's okay. Oh, he reasons no. it. He's, he's very okay. reasonable. <laughs> um, and he says, um, uh, 
please remember about the the importance of the concept of human rights. And then you have the nerve to ask how the new group will win over Newcastle United fans. I find it reprehensible. And as a Manchester United fan, I can promise I was ready to burn every piece of merchandise I owned before the ink was dry had they brought my team. Football is supposed to make society better, not be a vanity project for the worst people on earth. Those are, those are Dale's words. And he says, thank you for your time. Well, thank you for getting in touch, Dale. Um, yeah, cheers, Dale. I, I, I think... Um, it is really important for us to realise, and we always try and do this here on Jules and Andy, we realise that there are a range, as we said, of different emotions about this takeover. Now, that doesn't necessarily reflect our views on it, but if we weren't um, representing and putting across what different groups of fans think, I really don't think we'd be doing our job here. Now, I think we have to appreciate the fact um rightly or wrongly, that a lot of Newcastle United fans, as we said last week, are happy to be shot of Mike Ashley, whatever the cost. Um, is is it my view that it should be something that um, we shouldn't worry about, that we shouldn't think about where the money's coming from? Well, I don't believe that personally. And I also um, have, have not been in favour of the fact that some, by no means all, but some Newcastle United fans on, on Twitter and other social media have got after Amnesty International. Um, and I think it's hard to doubt that, that the motivation of them and, and where they're coming from, um, at least to find some, some balance in this discussion. And um, Newcastle United fans, have, some of them, again, have, have, have got after um, our friend and co-worker Miguel Delaney, who I think is simply doing his job and doing his job brilliantly in trying to really get under the skin of this and find out what it's about. And, and try and um, work out the the motivations and the mechanics of the deal because as we were saying last week, it's, it's it's definitely not up for the up to the media to be cheerleaders for any particular club. It's up to them to try and get a balanced picture of what's really happening, and we try and do that in both directions on Jules and Andy, and we will continue to do that. Although we appreciate your opinions, of course, whatever angle they're coming from. Yeah, absolutely, Dale. We we really appreciate you writing in and, and, and giving us your opinion on this because that's what this is all about. Football's a discussion, isn't it? Football has many emotions, many opinions, whether right or wrong. And me and Andy are here to kind of address those and, and hopefully get a, get across a broad range of opinions. So, you know, it's interesting to hear your thoughts on that and, and always interesting to hear from all of you on anything that we discuss. And And our job here is to kind of put across each opinion and see what other people in the media think of it to see what the professionals think of it and to see what you guys as fans think of it as well so keep getting in touch with us yeah and there's talking of nailing uh club loyalties to the mast there's a really interesting one from uh stasha wally here that says uh gary neville recently commented that he wouldn't have played for liverpool leeds or city in a million years i'm wanting to start my career as a female coach and have my two teams i support spurs and preston had me thinking if i was ever offered a job at my rival clubs would i accept as football fans <laughs> what would one do what would you guys do love this the show stasha well thanks for the question stasha so jules if you were offered <laughs> the opportunity to be crystal palace coach what would you say 
<laughs> oh my God, Stasha, this is a great question. Um, and I do have a bit of experience, not as a coach, uh, but in my line of work as a presenter, actually, this did actually happen to me. Um, it was quite a few years ago now when I first started working in football and Crystal Palace were looking for a presenter to join their kind of media team. And I saw the ad for it and I thought, oh, I'd, I'd love... I'd love to do that, but not particularly at Crystal Palace. And I thought, do I go for it? Should I go for it? And I just thought, I don't think I can go for it. Because can you imagine as a Brighton fan, first of all, the first thing they're going to ask me in the interview is, who do you support? And the minute I say <laughs> Brighton, they're just going to be like, get out, get out. Um, so I never ended up going for it. But it was one of those things. I really thought about it for a long time. And I thought, can I go and work for my team's rival club and I thought nah I don't think I can do it but Stasha I'm not saying that you should take my advice on this whatsoever you'd go for it if if you get a job working for one of your rival teams I'm not saying that you shouldn't do it but it must be it must be quite difficult mustn't it especially as a coach because you're then going to be coaching that team to win I guess for me as a presenter it was the thought of it just for me just wasn't right because I couldn't sit there on Crystal Palace TV or whatever they were going to end up calling it um, and kind of champion the side. It just would have felt wrong to me. But as a coach, perhaps as a job, as a role, if it's something that gets you further, then why not? You never know. You might be able to, you might be able to do it better than I would have done as a presenter, but I couldn't really face it personally. What do you reckon you could do it, Andy? Well, look, if Rains Park Vale are listening and you're looking for a, a, a sporting director at the moment, I'm interested. I, you know, <laughs> you can never never rule anything in or anything out. You know, we're all professionals in this game, Jules. Except for me. <laughs> <laughs> a final email here just to wrap things up. Uh, Craig Banks says, Hey guys, thanks for keeping up the podcast during the lockdown. It seriously makes my one hour walks a lot more enjoyable. Thanks, Craig. Uh, He says, my question is, have either of you seen a player live who played out of his skin, but isn't considered a great footballer? He says, for example, I remember seeing Rudy Gested for Aston Villa bully the Arsenal defence, but was probably his only shining light for Villa. What, What have you got, Andy? You got anyone you can think of? You know what? I think the first time I saw a game in Italy... I went to see uh, Inter versus Newcastle in the Champions League, which was an unbelievable match. And funnily enough, when we were talking about favourite players re- recently or, or, or best players um, that you could think of, uh, one of the ones that sprung to mind was Christian Vieri because you know when you see someone on television and then when you see them live, sometimes when you see them live, you get a whole new appreciation of, of what they can yeah. do. And I certainly mm. felt that way with Christian Vieri. He, he was incredible. And for me, he still stands up as one of the all-time great strikers. His all-round game was was outstanding, as well as his, his goals record. But also in that game, Olivier Bernard of Newcastle United had an unbelievable game. And I don't think he's, he's thought of as a good Newcastle player. He's not thought of as a great Newcastle player. If you'd have walked in and never seen any either of those teams before, I think you would have looked at Bernard and thought, yeah, this is a guy you could play for like Real Madrid or Barcelona or something like that. Or at that point, better teams than Barcelona because Barcelona weren't particularly <laughs> good at, at that point. 
All right. Well, thanks to everyone for getting in touch as always. We look forward to another Jules and Andy. Same time, same place next week. Just a couple of reminders before we go. Um, You may have heard yesterday on the Ramble, Pete mentioned that we've all been working on a bit of a unique collaboration with the good folks at IGN. They've played through Euro 2020 with England on Football Manager and we've been commentating on the games. It's a real treat. The first episode is going to be available tomorrow. That is Wednesday day this week with other episodes being released later on in the week as well so make sure you check it out yeah watch out drury and beglin we're quite a team it turns <laughs> out on, on on the mic aren't we jules um also you might like to keep an ear out we're um re-releasing um the early episodes of at the match because you know we we're talking about it just before in the matches that we've been enjoying outside so far this season the fresh air and the smell of the grease paint is is something special and that's something that at the match has always aimed to bring you and uh, this week we're off to italy uh, where we're going to enter against Genoa so uh, give that a listen that'll be up on the Football Ramble Daily Feed Awesome always good stuff on the Football Ramble Daily Feed make sure you check it out don't forget to subscribe and we will be back same time same place next week for another Jules and Andy have a good week Andy Cheers Ramblers have fun was a Stakhanov production. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big.